text for us this morning, starting in verse 14 and going all the way to verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole thing were an eye, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in those body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And the unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. As Christians, we believe in Jesus. We believe that Jesus became a man, that he entered human history. He actually added flesh to his divinity, humanity to his divinity. He became a man, he came to earth, and he came on a rescue mission to rescue man who is separated from God because of sin. Jesus accomplished everything needed for us to be made right with God. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live. That's what makes us righteous. Jesus died in our place. That's what removes our sin. Our sin gets imputed to him. His righteousness gets imputed to us. And when God looks at us, then he sees the imputed righteousness of Christ that's been given to us. That's how we're made righteous in God's sight. Jesus accomplished all of that work. He lived, he came, he lived, he died, he rose. And if you've been in church for any amount of time or if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, obviously you, you know that. You know at least something of that. That's what you believe in. That's what makes us Christians. That's what made you a Christian. You look to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance of sin, and trusted in him for righteousness and for life and for salvation. Jesus did all of that. But Jesus also did something else that maybe doesn't get talked about as much, but is indispensable to the entirety of his work. Jesus also established something. Jesus established one thing. Jesus says himself, I will build my church. Jesus came to establish his church. Jesus came to save a people who become his church. He calls these people his, his people, his sheep, his bride, his body. The church of Jesus Christ is his very own body. That's what Paul says here. There's different parts of the body. There's eyes, ears, nose, hands, feet, all kinds of members of the body, but the body is one united together because of Christ and in Christ. 
The question I want us to answer today is what does it mean to be a part of this body? What does it mean to be a member of this body? What does it mean to be a member of Jesus' church? There's a lot of different views on this. There's a lot of confusion, I think, on this. Some view being a member of Jesus' body as simply attending when it's convenient. When there's no vacation lined up or when I don't get invited somewhere, when I feel up to it, I attend sometimes and I intend to get inspired at best and maybe at worst entertained. There are some that view being a member of Christ's body as getting needs met, certainly a part of it. But I think oftentimes in our culture, that's what many almost exclusively view being a member of the body as being. I get my needs met or my preferences met. And if I feel like I'm not getting those met, then I'm gonna go elsewhere, somewhere else where people are more like me or where people are more in my life stage or where people understand more of what I'm going through. For some, being a member of the body is a place that we go to worship Sundays and we watch a few pastors do ministry. For others, there's no real need for a local church or for commitment of any sort to a local church or any sort of organized religion. After all, we're all the church. All Christians are the church. And, uh, you know, I can, I can worship God and be a member of his body how I choose and how I please, as long as I have good intentions, as long as I'm intending, trying to worship God. And that's really all that matters. And some friends, this is maybe the most pervasive view in our culture in terms of actual churches, just don't think that church membership is biblical. We're going to get into that. So what does it mean to be a member of the body of Christ? And I'm not just talking about theoretically, theologically, idealistically. I mean, we've got to talk about that, but I, but I mean practically in real life. What does it actually mean to be a member of Jesus' church? What does that look like? To answer this question, we have to go back to Scripture as we do with, with all issues regarding the church, God, spirituality. We need to go back to Scripture and be informed by Scripture. What does the Bible say about being a member of Jesus' body? And a different way to ask that would be, is church membership biblical? That's the first question I want to answer. Is church membership biblical? As I said, there are some who think that it's not. Um, A lot of brothers and sisters, churches that faithfully preach the gospel, they just don't think membership is biblical. They don't have membership. They don't they just don't. I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world, but we, we, we need to ask the question, is it biblical? And if it is, then what does it look like to practice faithful membership? Many will look at Scripture and say, well, there's no verse. There's no particular verse that, that exhorts an individual Christian to join a local church. And that's correct. There is no verse that says Christians must join a local church. There is no verse that says that. Many have taken that fact 
and have disregarded, because of it, have disregarded membership as a whole. It's man-made, it's more historic or traditional, it's not very biblical, it's okay if people want to do it, but it's not really necessary. It's not essential. The Bible doesn't tell us to do it. And I would just say we need to be very careful with that. There is no verse in the New Testament where Jesus says, I am God, either. There is no passage in the New Testament where the Trinity is comprehensively outlined. There's a lot of things that we believe and we hold firm, and in fact, things that that by definition make us Christians because we believe them, that there's no verse for that says word for word exactly what the doctrine is. But instead, we look at the totality of the Bible and the New Testament, and we say, okay, in, in the whole of things, what is being taught here? As we put all of it together, what is being taught? And I want to make the case to you that membership is thoroughly biblical. It's implied in a lot of different ways, and I would even say further than implied, it's actually, I think, assumed. I think it's assumed in the fabric of what the New Testament teaches about the church and Christians and a Christian's relationship to the church. I think it's assumed. I'm going to give us a few reasons. This is where we're going to start. Is is it biblical? What does the Bible say about this? I'm going to give us a few implications here for church membership in the New Testament. The first thing I want to point out is the fact that the church gathers. The church actually gathers. In Acts 2, for the first time, you see the church gathering. After the ascension, the church gathers. It's like 100 people, 120 people, and then it blows up and becomes a few thousand people. And it acts, in Acts 1, the, the small church is gathering. They're all together in, in one place. They're worshiping. In Acts 2, the church expands. God saves a lot of people. And then the church is coming together in the temple, and they're scattering throughout the week. The church gathers. It gathers. If you open up to the epistles in your Bible, starting in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, starting in Romans, I mean, Romans, 1, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all, all of those epistles, you'll see in the introduction, in the greeting, something like, to the church in Corinth, to the churches in Galatia. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 to the churches of Asia, the churches of Asia rather, send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. The, the church gathers. The church gathers. 1 Corinthians 12, this whole passage that we read, Paul's using this analogy of a body. Well, you can't have a, you can't have a unified body that's spread out all over the world. The analogy works only when you're talking about a particular congregation, as he's talking about to the Corinthians. You are a body. The Corinthian church is a body of believers. We, Union Church, are a body of believers. The church gathers. The question then would be, what gathering are you a part of? Paul, when he goes on missionary journeys, he meets Christians. He says, what, gather, what church are you a part of? I'm a part of the church in Smyrna or in Corinth or in Ephesus. I'm part of that gathering. 
never is there a category for, oh, I'm not part of a gathering, I'm just a Christian. No gathering for me, I'm just a Christian. What gathering are you part of? What group of people, of believers, do you identify with? Do you belong to? The church gathers. Number two, in addition, the church practices discipline. The church practices discipline. We're, you know, we're just doing a short, a five-part series on the church here. Um, in a longer series, we we'll probably do a whole sermon on this. We're not going to talk about it a ton. We talk about it a little bit in membership. We talk about some in membership class, more at our member meetings. Um, just a brief excursus on discipline because it's important for understanding membership. Church discipline is when a believer in a church or a member of a church is in ongoing, unrepentant sin. And over a long period of time of exhortation and pleading and discipleship and, and helping and reproving with leadership involved, um, if that person continues in unrepentant sin and continues to be unteachable, then church discipline is when we say, well, as far as we can tell, you don't love Jesus. You're just in blatant unrepentant sin and there's nothing changing. We've, we've tried a lot of different things and there's, there's, there's no repentance here. Christians repent of sin. The issue is not do I sin. The issue is do I care about my sin? Like, am I repenting of it? Am I turning from it? Or am I just living in it, enjoying it, and saying, well, yeah, I'm a Christian and everything's fine. That's, that's not what a Christian is. And so at some point, that individual will get put out of the church. Or at least what we say is, we can no longer affirm your, your faith. We can no longer affirm that you're a Christian. We'd ask you to not partake of the Lord's Supper. The point is, when it comes to membership, if, if you can be put out, that means that you, at some point, have been brought in. You can't be put out if you've never been brought in. Matthew 18, Jesus lays this out, and he says, if there's a brother who's in sin, go to him and tell him his fault, and if that doesn't work, then take another person, and if that doesn't work, then tell it to the church, and if he doesn't listen to the church, then treat him like a pagan, doesn't mean be mean to him and be jerk, but it means like, like you'd evangelize to a pagan. You'd treat them like a non-Christian. Hey, instead of having Christian fellowship with you, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about the gospel with you because I think you need to actually trust in Jesus again and get saved. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul deals with this, with the church in Corinth, an unrepentant person in their congregation, and Paul tells them to cast him out. He says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, what, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's, you know, if an outsider is sinning, that's what non-Christians do. Why, that, we don't judge outsiders. It's, that's not what we're talking about. But then he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Unrepentant, ongoing sin. Not being teachable, not wanting to listen. We need to make clear that person, we, we, at this point, we don't think that person is a Christian. If we pretend like everything that they're doing is okay and they're unrepentant, ongoing sin, that's a horrible gospel witness. That makes, for the sake of nicety, that, makes, that really tarnishes Jesus' name in his church. 
So to be put out, you must be brought in. It's more than in just attendance. That's some sort of formal commitment. The church gathers. The church practices discipline. Number three, the church honors leadership. The church honors leadership. Hebrews 13, 17. It says, honor your leaders. Obey your leaders. They're the ones who spoke God's word to you. And they're the ones that have to give an account for your soul. Well, friends, there's a couple questions we have to ask about that as we read verses like that. If we're Christians and we read verses, obey your leaders, we need to ask, who is that? There's a lot of Christian leaders, there's a lot of Christian pastors, so who is it exactly that I'm accountable to? Is it the person I listen to most on podcast? Is it the person I agree with the most theologically? Is it the person who, you know, I first heard their sermons on the radio and that's really how I became a Christian and so I have some sort of allegiance to them? Who exactly is it? In addition, on the leadership perspective, if there are a particular people that pastors have to give an account for, well, you better believe that we want to make sure we know who those people are. Are those just people who listen online? Are those people who have visited the church once, five times? Who are those people? There has to be some way of making clear these are the people that we're accountable for. That was clearly in the author's mind when he wrote the book. Um, Lastly, the church gathers, the church practices discipline, the church honors leadership. In addition, the church is accountable. The church itself is accountable. Um, The church is held accountable ultimately when there's doctrinal error, moral failure, etc. Galatians 1, 1 Corinthians 5, Acts 13, all good examples. Galatians 1, Paul says to the church in Galatia, I'm astonished to the church. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the gospel that I preached to you and are turning to a different gospel. I'm amazed by that. You're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. 1 Corinthians 5, in that issue of discipline, he calls the church to account as a whole. In Acts 13, the church sends out missionaries. So the church is accountable. Now, pastors and elders have primary responsibility for this. We don't want to flatten all that out and make... Not everybody has the same job. Not everybody has the same responsibility. That's clear. But to some, to some degree, the church as a whole is responsible. The church as a whole bears some responsibility in all of this. Public sin, doctrinal error. If we have people in our congregation in obvious, ongoing, unrepentant sin and everyone's okay with it, that's a problem. If there are people that creep into our congregation and begin teaching 
false doctrine and everyone's okay with it, that's a problem. Problem for a lot of reasons, but you, you get what I'm saying. The church as a whole bears some sort of responsibility for these things. And that's how the church is treated in the New Testament. So, yes, membership is biblical. Yes, I, the particular form and process of membership requires prudence and wisdom. The Bible doesn't outline every single step of exactly how we should do everything. The Bible doesn't say we should do three classes after church and then a meeting and then, you know, it doesn't tell us to do that. We just think that that's left up to prudence and, and wisdom. What we're getting at is this particular group of people that we affirm each other as believers, we submit to leadership, we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we're on mission together, we're responsible for the gospel, the ministry of the gospel in our church together. All of that is what we're getting at. So yes, membership is biblical. The form and the process is, can change, can be different. But the Bible is clear the New Testament is clear that it never envisions a Christian apart from the church. I think it's built into the fabric of all of the New Testament's teaching on the Christian life and on the church. Being part of, being part of a church is embedded in the Christian life. The next question we have to ask, and okay, here, that's what the Bible says about it. Where is it implied? Where is it assumed in Scripture? But the next question we have to ask is, what is it? What is church membership then? What, is, what does it actually mean to be a part of a body? We see that the New Testament tells us in a variety of forms to be part of a body. So what does that actually mean? There's a lot we could talk about on this. Um, I want to hone in on one or two things in particular. The main thing I want to talk about for what it means to be a church member, rather, what is church membership, is commitment. Commitment. 1 Corinthians 12, again, 19 through 21. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. In our day, commitment is an unpopular word. Commitment in general is, is unpopular. I think one of the reasons for that is because we really like options. We really like to keep our, our options open. We really don't like to be tied down by anything. When it comes to church, we'd prefer to have the options to come and go, to stay home if we have the sniffles, or to go where... There are more eyes like us. For an eye, we want to be where there's more eyes. For a hand, we want to go where there's more hands. It's easy to jump around. And it's common to place low priority on being committed to a church. And one of the things that we have to confess, I think all of us, is that we are all, particularly in, in the West, we're all a fundamental part of us is consumeristic. And I think that's, that's there in everybody. 
I think we are so used to so many options and so used to will this benefit me and so used to where should I purchase this? What kind should I purchase? Will this help? Is this something I want to do? If not, then I'm not going to buy it or I'm not going to do it or I'm not going to go there. And I think we all bring some of that to the table. I think we need to be honest about that, ask God to search our hearts on that, confess that, encourage and exhort each other away from that type of thinking. But we must seek convictions and practice from Scripture. We must be informed by Scripture, our convictions and our practice. And in biblical membership, we are committing our lives to a particular group of people. We are committing our lives to a particular group of people. We are acknowledging, I belong to this body. And I have a part to play in this body. This is where I'm planting down. This is where I'm going to raise my family. This is where the people are who I'm going to seek to know most. This is where I'm going to be known. This is where I'm going to do life, invest my time, talent, treasure. This is where I'm going to be on mission. We have to acknowledge all that, and we have to commit to that. Church membership, if... Again, there's a lot we could say on this, but if nothing else, it's a commitment of our heart, soul, mind, energy, time, treasure, talent. It's a commitment. Now, you might ask, well, is it a lifelong commitment? Does that mean I'm here for life and I can never go anywhere else? No, that's not what it means. There, there, are, there are plenty of legitimate reasons to move churches. Sometimes it's practical. We had a few members this year who moved farther away. We help them find other churches. That, that's fine. That's very reasonable, normal. Um, sometimes it's a health reason. Sometimes we grow up, you know, in a particular church, and um, maybe at some point later we become Christians. We hadn't been Christians. We realize that the church we're in is just not healthy for a number of reasons. I'm not talking about tertiary doctrinal issues, but they're just fundamental unhealth. The gospel maybe isn't actually being faithfully preached. It's, it's, there's bad stuff going on, not a healthy place. There's times where it's like, we've got to bail. We, we need to get out. With counsel, wisdom, make those decisions slowly. There are some times when there's a positive reason, like a mission reason. We hope to over the years, to raise up and send out church planters. And so those would be people leaving the church for mission. That's a good thing. We have people at our church who have come here because they see what God's doing and they want to be a part of that. Awesome. That's a good thing. There, there, there can be good reasons to move churches, to move your commitments, but I fear that much of the time, those things are not the reason that we leave churches. I fear that much of the time, the reasons that we leave are because our particular expectations have not been met. Our preferences have not been met. Or we've experienced some sort of conflict with another church member or leader 
and they really hurt me, so I'm out. I'm out. I'm leaving. Friends, biblical membership is commitment through thick and thin. Biblical membership is commitment in joyful seasons and in challenging seasons. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 and 22, again, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Well, you know what? We're going to feel like that sometimes. How many of you are an eye and you've ever said to a hand, I don't need you. You're annoying. You've hurt my feelings. I don't like how you, I don't, you've, you've, you've bothered me. You've, we've been in conflict in some way and I don't, I don't need you. We're going to feel like that sometimes. But we don't just disconnect from the body. We're going to get pet the wrong way sometimes. Someone may say the wrong thing to you. Your expectations might get unmet. We might disagree at times. In fact, there might be genuine hurt between members. But we are committed to each other through thick and thin. We are committed to pursuing Jesus Christ together. We are committed to growing in grace together. We are committed to being on mission together. We are committed to fulfilling our responsibilities as church members together. Church membership, friends, if anything else, it means committing to Jesus Christ with a particular people. And I want us to see that this commitment is not a burden, but a blessing. That's the other thing. What is church membership? It's a blessing. It's a blessing. Sometimes I feel that we don't want to commit to things because we feel they're going to be burdens. We don't want to commit to things because we don't, you know, we don't want to limit our options. That's burdensome. We want to be able to move freely and be led by the Spirit or whatever else. Church membership, this commitment is not a burden though, friends. It's a blessing. 1 Corinthians 12, 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Romans 12, 10 through 13. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. All of that is a blessing. All of that is a blessing. We're not left to do life alone. We're not left to bear burdens alone. We're not left to rejoice alone. We're not left to train our kids alone. We're not left to do any of that alone. We're not left with no encouragement, with no prayer, with no exhortation, with no help. Last night, I was we were sitting on the couch before the kids went to bed, and um, I think my wife asked Haddon, my son, if, he, if she said, do you know what daddy's going to preach on tomorrow? And, and he, we teach him that what we mainly preach about is Jesus. Sermons are about Jesus and 
And so he said, he's going to preach about Jesus. I said, that's right. Do you know what else? And he said, no. I said, and church membership. We're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to talk about church membership. And so we talked about that a little bit, and it made me think. Children that grow up in, in healthy families where they're loved, where they're cared for, where they have responsibilities, there's, always, there's challenges in families. We live in a fallen world. We're sinful. They're sinful. But, you know, you have challenges. But overall, it's a, it's a blessing, to say the least. It's a blessing. And I was thinking last night about that with my kids, and I was thinking, what if, they, what if these kids were to grow up in a family where they actually had no family, were to grow up without a family, apart from a family, getting kicked around in foster care or whatever else, just don't have a family. Think about that. Think about the damage. Think about the loneliness. Think about the fear. Think about all the things that have to just try to figure out on their own. Well, friends, that's not what God intends. We all know that. But I just want to tell you it's the same exact thing with a Christian and a church. It's the same exact thing. We all realize that an orphaned child is a, is a tragedy. We ought to seek to care for orphans and love them. But for some reason, we have a real lackadaisical view at large. The church at large has a real lackadaisical view about orphaned Christians. Same thing. Before we're Christians, we are orphans. Jesus comes, he accomplishes everything to make us right with God, our Father, and we're adopted into the Father's family. No longer orphans. We're no longer orphans. Jesus commits himself to us in the gospel, and God the Father commits to being our Father in the gospel. He, he, he commits to us, to love us, to care for us, to be our Father. God himself commits to us. And so we, then, as orphans who have been adopted into that family, we get to commit to him and to his people. Friends, that's a blessing. Church membership is a commitment. But if you're scared of that word, don't be. It's a commitment that's a blessing, not a burden. We get to commit to Jesus and to his people because Jesus has committed to us. As members of this family then, Jesus gives us specific responsibilities, specific commitments. That's the third thing I want to hone in on. What does it mean to be a church member? Is it biblical? Yes. What is it? Commitment? Blessing? Okay, what does that mean? What does it look like? We're part of this family. So let's hash that out a little bit. What does it look like to be a part of this body, this 1 Corinthians 12 body? Eyes, ears, nose, feet. What, what does all that mean? The first thing that it means is that we gather. We're committed to gathering. We have a responsibility to gather, to gather. Hebrews 10 24 and 25. 
The author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The first and most fundamental responsibility of a church member is to attend church. It's to gather. And they sound simple, obvious. You know, none of this is, is real complex. None of it's rocket science. I don't have a lot for you that you probably haven't heard. Um, simple stuff. But it's important that we're reminded of it. We are actually responsible to gather. We, just, we don't just come to get. We come because God has called us to. Presence. Attendance. Yes, there are times where, where folks miss church. We get that. We have stuff going on. You know, we go on vacation. I mean, there's, you know... Don't hear me say it's a sin to miss church ever. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this must be priority. You think about all the things you have going on in life. Think about if, you, if somebody asks you or if you ask somebody else, how's your week been? What's, what's the response? Or busy, right? Good, super busy. So have a lot, a lot of stuff going on. Okay, we all understand that. Every, everybody's really busy. Okay, so let's think about this for a moment. Family functions, birthday parties, spe- special events, vacations, naps, kids, your kids' naps, babies, they have nap schedule. Your naps, you want to take a nap? I stayed out late, I had to sleep in, I have stuff going on. Okay, look, I mean, whatever, fi- you know, fill it in. I just, somebody invited me to do something fun. Um, lots of stuff comes up. If this is not a priority, it will get swept away by something else. Now, it must be a priority, friends, to obey God when he says... Through the author of Hebrews, don't forsake to gather. To receive God's word, to be with God's people, to be stirred up to good works, to practice good works, to love each other, to pray for each other, to do all the rest of the things that I'm about to tell you is our responsibility to do. We, we have to first be present. We have to be present. Number two, give. What does it mean to be a church member? Gather. We give. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Just think about that verse. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Do you believe that? Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, again, priority, priority. There's a lot of stuff we could spend money on. There's a lot of stuff we could, we could take the money that we give and there's a lot of stuff we could take that money and spend it on that we, that we like. You guys got fancy stuff in your cart on Amazon. You guys go to the mall and you see stuff that you want. You have a, your wish list. We have stuff in our minds that we, we know we want. 
Or maybe it's something that sounds like a little bit more responsible, like I have to pay off debt. I have to pay off my credit card. I have to pay off my student loans. Or I'm saving for a home. Okay? There's a lot that we'd like to spend our money on. This is an issue of priority. And and it's an issue of the heart. One of the main reasons that this is commanded in Scripture is because God's after your heart. And if we look at our bank statements, we see a good indication of where our heart is. Really good indication. What is your money going towards? God doesn't need your money. What he wants is your heart. He knows that our hearts are prone to worship money. We understand that? Our hearts are prone to worship money. You're not above it. I'm not above it. We're not. And listen, you don't have to be rich to worship money. You don't. There's rich people in the Bible who are righteous. There's rich people in the Bible who are unrighteous. Poor people who are righteous. Poor people who are unrighteous. Paul says to Timothy, he just says, the desire to be rich will mess your life up. And a love for money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say anything about your actual status of wealth. Could be, you could have no money and love it. And I tell you what, that's an idol. If that's the case, that's an idol. This is something that our hearts need to be fighting against ongoing. Ongoing. You don't, we don't get to a point where we've arrived. We're past that temptation. Man, it's always, it's always going to be prone to sneak back up. So we, we give. Your first question might be, well, what, how much? What percentage? And I would just say that's the wrong question. I would also say it's the wrong question to, to, to make a strenuous case that we don't have to give 10% anymore. Because of no, new, no, more, no more Old Testament. And so if that's the first thing you're going to, here's why we don't have to give 10%. I would say that's also the wrong, wrong way to think. Cheerful and sacrificial. Okay, that's what we teach. Cheerful and sacrificial. That's true. We don't teach some percentage. Um, I think it's a good benchmark to try to strive for. 10% is a helpful number. There's no New Testament Bible verse about that. Okay, cheerful and sacrificial. That's really the, the issue. It can't just be cheerful because you could have, you know, you could be a billionaire and say, I give 100 bucks and I feel real cheerful about it. Well, that's great, but it wasn't sacrificial. It wasn't sacrificial. So cheerful, I, I'm, God, this is hard for me to do, but give me joy in it. And sacrificial, you actually feel it. Does it actually make a difference? I mean, do you feel it? Or is it just like, whoosh, no big deal. I can totally afford that. Doesn't, doesn't affect me at all. Um, Jesus and his disciples, they're watching people at one point in his ministry put money into the offering at the temple. A bunch of these rich guys come by with all these bags of coin and they just throw it on in and, you know, very rich and I'm very generous. And, and Jesus says, that's, you know, that's great, but that little old lady who just put a couple cents in, that was like half the money she had. And that gift, God values and treasures and loves more than those huge amounts. Why? Because it was sacrificial. Cheerful and sacrificial. Number three, love. The responsibilities of a church member are to gather, to give, 
Number three, love. And here, really, we could throw in all the one another's. There's a lot of them in Scripture. But I just want to focus on love because this is all, all the one another's are summed up in love. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another in brotherly affection. I think Paul in Galatians 6 says, seek to do good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith. So we seek to love. All the one another's are summed up in this. What is love? Love is seeking the good of another without selfish motive. Okay, so we seek the good of each other. Materially, heart needs, emotional needs, folks going through a hard season, illness, we seek to love them, care for them, be with them, be present with them, ask questions, get into their life. We seek to show hospitality. Sometimes we just seek good fellowship with each other. Maybe there's no crisis, there's no illness, or there's not, but we just want to be together. That's loving each other. But we're called to love. Number four, pray. Gather, give, love, pray. Colossians 4, 2 through 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open up to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Okay, pray for each other. Steadfastly continue in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Pray for each other. Church, pray for each other. Pray for each other. Some, you know, we have prayer requests that go out. Um, pray for those. But, but also, I would just encourage you, you don't have to wait for those. You don't have to wait for those. You know, as you're in your groups together, you can pray for each other in your groups. After church, you can pray for each other. I see you praying for each other on the patio. I know we're a people who does pray for each other. I know you pray in your groups. I know the gals at Parked pray for each other. I see you out after church praying for each other. At the women's discipleship, I've seen the gals praying for each other. At the men's discipleship last year, I know the guys were praying for each other. Each week after service, we have people down here that we, where we invite you to come and pray we can pray over you. We can pray for you. So two things. Number one, um, make your prayer requests known. Make them known. You know, you don't have to make them known. Make them known to people in your church, man. How can we pray for you? And, and, and other folks ask ask each other, how can I pray for you? And then here's another thing I would encourage you to do. When you do pray, you don't have to do this every time, but I would just say occasionally as it comes to mind, as you're praying for each other, let each other know that you're praying for each other. Let each other know. Shoot a text. Tell them on Sunday, hey, I was praying for you this week, and I just wanted to let you know. I hope that blesses you. I hope that those prayers were felt and answered in your life. This is what I was praying. Many of you, um, you let me know from time to time you're praying for me. I'm getting texts from Wally on Friday or Saturday every week saying, hey, brother, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your sermon prep. I'm praying for your family. So pray. 
for each other. Ask what the needs are and let other people know what the needs are. In addition, pray for the ministry and mission of the church. Paul says, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Okay, we have to pray for those things. That We have to pray for the lost people in our city. We have to pray that their hearts would be softened, that God would draw them to hear the gospel. We have to pray for the ministry of the word in our church. We have to pray for conversation in the, our groups throughout the week. We have to pray for the... For, 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 our, for the discipleship that folks are in. We have to pray that God actually works through these things, trust that he will, ask him for specific things in people's lives, ask him for salvation. I mean, guys, I would encourage you to have, ha, have non-Christians on your prayer list that you're regularly praying for their salvation. I mean, James says, we have not because we ask not. You know, people with our theological bent say, well, that's not true. <laughs> well, it is true. There's a Bible verse that says it. God says, James says, God says through James, you have not because you ask not. Meaning, if you would pray and ask God, he would answer. Okay, however you want to deal with that, it's a verse in scripture, and it is clear. If you pray, God will answer. So, if we care about the salvation of lost people, what we ought to do is ask God to save them. Generally, but also specifically. This lost person, and this lost person, and this lost person. God, would you save these people? So we pray. We gather, give, love, pray, Number five, preserve. We preserve. Galatians 1, 6. Paul says again, to the church in Galatia, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He holds the church to account for not preserving the gospel. There's a false gospel that's, that's infiltrated these churches, a bunch of guys have come to these churches and they've said, yeah, 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 Jesus is amazing. We love Jesus and we love that he accomplished all he did on the cross. There's something that your, your guy Paul is leaving out though. Yeah, he's cool, but he's leaving something out. You also need to get circumcised. You also need to live like a Jew. Okay, add to that whatever you want. You also need to get baptized. You also need to, you know... Be really moral. You also need to pray this many times a day. It's a distorted gospel. There are things that have been added to it. And Paul says it's your job to preserve the gospel. I'm astonished that you haven't done that. <coughs> this is not just someone else's job. Again, there's, there's an order to this. And pastors and elders, this is our primary responsibility. But... It's all of our job, ultimately, to preserve the gospel. Protect and preserve the gospel. What this means then, friends, is that you need to know the gospel. We all need to know the gospel. We need to be able to explain the gospel. We need to be able to identify distortions of the gospel. We need to know what it means to be justified by faith. We need to know what it means to be saved by grace. 
We need to know how to exhort a brother or a sister in unrepentant sin and not just be okay with that or in fear think, well, they're not going to like me or they're just going to get mad. Well, it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility. You don't need to go... I'm not telling you go find all these answers on your own. That's not how, at all what I'm saying. It's my, one of my jobs to equip you for these things. But it's all of our jobs to take hold of the gospel, to take hold of these things, to take ownership of them, to study, to know God's word, to treasure the gospel together. What we start here on Sundays for 45 minutes or however long I preach, we need to go and, and continue in part of why we do union groups. We can go and discuss these things, talk about these things, get them worked into our hearts more. We also need to go do our own work. It takes some work. But man, it's our job. It's our job to preserve and protect the gospel. That's the job of every Christian. Number six, to disciple. Disciple. Gather, give, love, pray, preserve, disciple. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We disciple one another. All that means is helping one another grow in Jesus. Build one another up in love. Equip one another. Train one another. Now look, this is a lifelong process to be sure. But one of the super practical ways that we want to help in this process is by one-on-one discipleship where we literally go through just fundamental doctrines of Scripture together. Get each other built up in God's word. We have this for men. We have this for women. We took the men through this last year, like 20 men. We have about the same amount of women doing that right now. We're finishing up. Okay, this is one of the ways that we begin to grow in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's word. If you haven't been discipled in that way, I'd encourage you to do so. If you've been through it, I'd encourage you to seek out others to disciple. Say, well, don't they just email if they want to be discipled? Yes, but I'm telling you to seek them out. If you know somebody in the church who has not been discipled, then you, or somebody who is not yet part of the church who has not been discipled, that's fine. They don't have to be members. We just want to help people who God brings to us grow in Christ. So seek them out. Hey, bro, have you been through our discipleship thing? No, why don't we do it? be a great time for us to get to know each other better, be in fellowship, and for us to learn together, edify each other. Okay, don't wait for opportunities. Seek them out, friends. So we disciple. Gather, give, love, pray, preserve, disciple. Lastly, evangelize. It's our responsibility to evangelize. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. In Jesus Christ, God has reconciled man to himself. That's the gospel. Jesus has come and lived and died 
for us so that we can be connected back to God. This, friends, that fact, this gospel is what made us members of his body. It's what brought us into his household. It's what made us part of God's family. In the gospel is the only forgiveness. In the gospel is our only hope. In the gospel is our only true life. And now as his family, you and I are entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. We understand that? This is not someone else's job. Our church body is entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Think of the church like an embassy, and we're all ambassadors, representing God to the world. That is who we are. And that is what we're responsible for as church members. When we represent God to the world, the main thing we're representing is the ministry of reconciliation. This is what God's done to make us right with himself. This is what God's done to forgive our sin. This is what God's done to make us righteous. Again, I want to ask, what non-Christians, friend, are you in relationship with? What non-Christians are you praying for? Say, well, it makes me feel guilty now. I'm not, I don't want to feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just asking. It's our responsibility to be engaged in relationship with non-Christians. So, what non-Christians are you in relationship with? Are you loving? Are you pursuing? Are you praying for? Gather, give, love, serve. Sorry, love, pray, preserve, disciple, evangelize. Pretty basic stuff. But these are our responsibilities, friends, as part of Jesus' body, and they're joyful responsibilities, joyful commitment. So who is your life committed to? Who are you known by? Who are you bearing burdens with? All of life's burdens, of which there's a lot. Who are you holding fast with? Holding fast to the hope of God with? Who are you encouraged by and encouraging? Who are you spurring on and who's spurring you on? For the Christian who cannot answer that question, I would say you are living contrary to the pattern, the clearly revealed pattern of Scripture. You're living contrary to it. And I would implore you, I would urge you to make that commitment a priority. It's okay to take things slow, but don't excuse yourself, don't languish. I would urge you to make it a priority. For the non-Christian, the main thing you need to know at this point is that Jesus Christ died for you to bring you into his family. There's no money to pay. There's no work to do. All that's to be done is to repent of sin and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith because you need to know the Father who Jesus reconciles us to loves you. He loves you. And he's made provision to bring you to himself. For us members of Union Church, when I think of you, I often think of Philippians 1. I thank God in all my remembrance of you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I know this, that he who began a good work in us will finish it, 
will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. As I think of you, that is an appropriate verse that comes to mind often. Thank you for your love, your care, your service, your devotion, your generosity, your heart for the mission of the gospel in this church. And I would just say, friend, keep fighting the good fight. Keep pressing on. Keep enduring. Keep running. Because we need to know. We need to be encouraged by. We need to pray for and trust in the fact that Jesus has more work to do through us. Amen? Jesus, you came to live and die and you rose and you created a people for yourself. You did all of that to create a people for yourself. And you, you call us, Lord, your people, not your slaves, not your, even your servants, though we happily serve you. You call us your friends. Furthermore, you call us your people. Furthermore, you call us your family. And even further, you call us your bride. And even further, you call us your own body. What an honor to be part of your body, Jesus. We thank you that you have had so much grace on us to choose to bring us into fellowship with you, communion with you, union with you. We pray, Lord, for us as Union Church that we would faithfully and joyfully seek to walk in our responsibilities as church members before you, always remembering your grace, always remembering your goodness, always remembering all of your incredible mercy on us. But would you bless our efforts and our labor and our devotion, God? And would you reprove us and convict us where we need to be reproved and convicted? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? And would you help us, God, to work out all of those one another's with each other as we strive and press forward, God, in life together and unity with you and with each other. Amen. Amen.